what are you doing with that pumpkin? I have an idea. Let's sell it and give the money to Fabian. Okay. Hey guys, we can use your help. You can help too. Come on. This money can support Fabian Kids Network. Revelation, the time of the end, mysterious signs, strange happenings, confusing numbers. Are we facing a new world order and the mark of the beast? Are we living on a planet in upheaval? Are we on the verge of Armageddon? Revelation, what do all the signs in this mysterious book mean? Discover real answers. Revelation Speaks Peace with Sean Boonstra. Good evening, everybody. All right, here comes the question. Is sex outside of marriage really something the Bible condemns? Or is that some kind of Victorian hangover that people are reading into the Bible? Somebody's a wishful thinker. I bet you already know where I'm going with this one. But it does come in a lot, actually. Even people who grew up in the church are starting to question it. I, I, honestly, they come and ask me that. And I was pastoring a church, young people would come and say, is that really in the Bible? We don't find it anywhere in the Bible. It is in the Bible. Uh, the, the answer is yes. God's ideal plan for sex is inside of the marriage covenant. That's where it's supposed to happen. And I know some people will say, but you can't find it anywhere in the Bible that condemns it. It condemns adultery, which is cheating on your spouse. We found that, but I'm not married yet, and so it doesn't condemn that. Well, actually it does. You're just not paying attention to the language. You won't find the expressions premarital sex in the Bible. That's not how they described it. They used a rather pointed Greek word called pornea. It's where we get the word pornography, pornea, and it was translated fornication. So every time you see fornication in the Bible, it's sex outside of marriage. Here are some specific examples. You asked, so I'm going to read them to you. Second Corinthians chapter 12, for I fear less, this is verse 20, when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, da, 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 21, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, shall mourn for many who have sinned before and not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. You know, often people will point to the Christian church and say, the church got all these problems. Yeah, well, duh, it's full of sinners. Sinners make mistakes and do things. And what I take heart in is that most of the New Testament was written to address the same problems in the first century church. They were doing it too. And Paul had to say, the fornication has to stop. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians, Galatians, Galatians. Now the works of the flesh. This is Galatians 5.19. This is as pointed as it gets. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Notice that's quite a list, isn't it? Yeah. Everybody in this room's on that list somewhere. 
Okay, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's other reasons, though. God intended marriage to represent something. In Ephesians 5, it, he tells us that he intended our relationship between man and woman to resemble the relationship he has with his people or with his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, it describes the marriage relationship, and then Paul actually says, look, what I'm really describing is Jesus and the church. Our homes are supposed to reflect what heaven is, and when God declares he's having a relationship with somebody, it's permanent, you can trust on it, and his covenants stand. And so our covenants and our exclusivity to each other is supposed to stand too, because we're supposed to show heaven to the world. The good news is that slipping sexually is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. In this day and age, a lot of people be out of the kingdom if it were but God can forgive this sin and cleanse us of it just like anything else. And I promise you in the blood of Christ tonight, if you have messed up in your relationships, you can have a brand new start through Jesus Christ. You really can. He forgives us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. This is one sin that a lot of people just, oh, they feel so awful afterwards and dirty and how can God deal with me? It says he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can start again here too. Our topic tonight, the coming of the lawless one. We're going to look at stuff tonight that would have been really obvious to a first century audience, but with the passage of 2,000 years, and frankly, with the 20th century behind us, where we were no longer the Bible students we once were, well, it means we have to do a little bit of homework. So that's partly what we're going to do tonight. And because our textbook is the Word of God, I'd ask you to bow your head with me in prayer. Father in heaven, this evening, I'm asking again that you would bless me. I'm asking that the voice we hear in this auditorium would be the voice of Jesus Christ, that that would be all we hear, that our hearts would be warmed to the voice of the Spirit so that we see Jesus and we understand Jesus and, and we understand what your Word is saying about Christ Allow me just to fade into the background. Lord, forgive my sin and give me the ability tonight to think clearly and speak clearly and be faithful. I long for the day Jesus comes and what I'd like him to say is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So allow me, Father, tonight to be faithful. Speak to my heart as I speak here because we're about to handle holy things. And when the Lamb speaks to our heart, we will follow him wherever he goes. And we pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. A few nights back, we were studying well, the most prevalent topic in Bible prophecy, which is the second coming of Christ. And when we did that, we looked at a passage in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is explicitly clear that Antichrist must come, must reveal himself before Jesus returns for the church. Tonight I want to dig a little bit deeper into that passage because Paul goes on in that same chapter to identify a massive last day issue that is intimately connected to the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul writes, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, he's talking back to 1 Thessalonians, they got all excited when he had written, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. 
He says, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's no question in Paul's description that the Antichrist reveals himself to the world before Jesus comes to gather believers. And that means that you and I cannot afford to let down our guard for one second. We have to be on our guard. We have to know what the Word of God says because overwhelming deceptions, Jesus says, especially in Matthew 24, might even affect the very elect. We have to keep our eyes open. We have to stand on the Word. Now, I want you to notice there are two things in that passage Paul says must happen before Jesus comes. He describes a great falling away, an apostasy, if you will, people wandering away from the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And he says that the man of sin has to appear. Those two things must take place before Jesus returns for the church. And then in verse 7, Paul goes on to say something very interesting. Verse 7 says, for the mystery of what? Lawlessness is already at work. Paul said in his day there's an apostasy coming, and he says that lawlessness will be a last day problem, and he says that it was already at work back in his day. This is an early problem. This is actually a last day problem that finds its roots in the earliest days of the Christian church, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows until the Antichrist is simply revealed. And he identifies that issue as lawlessness, the Greek word anomia, without the law. And it is a huge issue. In another passage describing the end of time, Paul looks down through the corridors and actually describes the behavior of Earth's final generation in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, he says, that in the when. Oh, be with me now. I know it's been a long week. When? Last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, they don't, they don't keep their word, false accusers, incontinent, meaning they don't have any self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good. That's not only that they do bad, they hate people who do good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, I don't know if that rings a bell for you. I don't know if that sounds like anything you've seen on this planet, but I'm telling you tonight, if there has ever been a generation that resembles that description, it is ours. And the problem seems to be getting worse with every passing day. You and I are now living in a world with a string of broken homes, and the courts are full of lawsuits, and the streets are dangerous. Actually, it's McDonald's in Brooklyn that's becoming dangerous. I don't know if you saw the video going around on YouTube this week. A bunch of teenage girls, I mean, kids have always fought, but five or six of them gang up on one young lady and they beat the stuffing out of her right in McDonald's where everybody just watches. And then when she's down and passed out, they keep kicking her in the face. That stuff's happening every week now. 
It's not that way before. I mean, this is new. The world is not the way that it used to be. I mean, we've always had violence, but the violence now seems to become more frequent and more brutal. Hard to believe that when I was a little kid, I was allowed to go wherever I wanted. That's six years old. Hey, son, get on your bike. Really? Just go. Yeah, go explore the town. Do whatever you want. There are only two rules. When the fire hall rings the bell at noon, come home for lunch. And when the street lights come on at night, then come home for dinner. Otherwise, just go do what you please. Just go. They weren't worried. Actually, I'm starting to worry about how much my mom actually loved me. <laughs> it's changed, though. Hasn't been that many decades. I'm not that old. Now mothers hate to let their kids into the backyard out of sight because of what might take place. It's different now. We say we're a Christian nation. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. We say we're a Christian nation, and yet I'm guessing most of you feel the need to lock your doors at night. Huh? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure. How did this happen to us? Well, maybe it has something to do with what we've been putting in the filing cabinet for decades, the stuff we place in our minds. But there is another problem. There is another problem that has contributed to this absolutely. It's a little theory called situation ethics. It's a concept that was popularized by a professor by the name of Joseph Fletcher in oh, roughly the late 60s. You might know situation ethics as relativism. It's the reigning philosophy of our postmodern world. And this is the way my generation was literally taught to think in college. It's the way we were taught. It teaches that what is moral, what is true and false, what is right and wrong, what is good and evil is dependent on the situation. It teaches there are no hard and fast rules about what is right and wrong. And the professors that taught that to us in college used to use these really extreme examples to make the point. Stuff that would never, ever happen to you in real life, but they pull it out of their hat to make it seem like there are questions over what is moral. I remember one professor saying, now imagine you're in a car wreck with your wife car rolls in the ditch, you crawl out, but your wife is pinned under the car and there's no getting her out. You try to lift the car and she's going to die if you don't get help. So you wander down the country road and find a house and you knock on the door. But the people inside are scared. They won't open the door and they won't call for help. They tell you to go away and you desperate, please, my wife is going to die, but they won't open the door. And then you see their children playing in the yard. Wouldn't it be all right to twist that child's arm to get them to open the door so that you could call for help? They were serious. They were trying to teach us that nothing is wrong if you can think of a good reason to do it. Anything can be right depending on the circumstances. There's no absolute right, no absolute wrong. They're just